What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. The, the federal government's gotten so big, it's beyond belief of our founders. Uh, our regular processes don't work anymore. For the first time in, a, in American history, Sean, we borrowed 100% of our operating budget this year. If it's not anything like anyone's ever seen in Washington, D.C. And so I think we have to have a different perspective. It's a different time. If we're going to make changes, we've got to have different leadership. There was systemic racism when I was born in 1954. Three civil rights acts in the 1960s while I was a child ended systemic racism. The whole argument today is that Racial and ethnic minorities, particularly Blacks, are victims, and you have to lower the standard. They argue that math is racist now. All of that is ludicrous. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. It is Friday. This is the Sean Spicer Show. We are going to kick the show off with a great conversation with Congressman Kevin Hearn. He is a congressman from Oklahoma's first congressional district. He is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. That is the largest caucus in the House dedicated to injecting conservative principles, fiscal discipline in the House. Hearn grew up with a series of franchises. He went from dirt poor to the owner of several McDonald's franchises before he ran to Congress. He brings a common sense, fiscal responsible attitude and game plan to Congress. I'm excited to have this conversation with him. Let's go. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you making time in this busy week. It's uh, It's been very busy. Uh, obviously, <laughs> very important we get a speaker elected. Did yeah. I mess that up? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I, there's a lot of times I see a commercial or I hear something about someone's first job being at McDonald's. I mean, you literally got your start at McDonald's, didn't you? I did. You know, I started off as an aerospace engineer and I love to fly. And and so when the space shuttle Challenger blew up, uh, it changed my direction. And a buddy of mine known a few McDonald's, a little rocky, said, you ought to try this franchising gig. And little did I know that it would lead to a 35 year career and uh, taking 10 years to actually save $100,000 to be able to get my first restaurant, only to make less money owning that restaurant than I did actually working for a guy uh, through the franchising program. I quickly sold that restaurant about a year later in Little Rock and moved to Oklahoma, bought two there, and then went from two to 24 uh, over a period of you know 20 years. 
had uh, thousands of employees, uh, got into other businesses, banking, real estate development, technology companies, manufacturing companies, publishing companies. And so I, I spent my entire life uh, being the last to get paid as a small business owner. So why McDonald's? I mean, I get of all the franchises, is it just because this one guy introduces you to it? Well, that, but also uh, you got to, you know, my life was very poor when I was in my early years. My my mother and dad, my dad was in the military, been to Vietnam a number of times. And my mother, who had myself and my younger brother, had my older sister had passed away. And she was a, a lonely spouse. And she got tired of this. And she just, we lived in Wichita, Kansas, and she moved away. I moved back to Arkansas, where my dad and, and she were from. Uh, and she married a guy who didn't like to work. And my stepdad was a guy that uh, figured out how to abuse the food stamp system at that time where you actually got checks mailed to your mailbox. And it was the first generation thing. His parents were hardworking individuals. My mother's, my grandparents were very hardworking. So they went on to have three more kids. So here she's five, you know, five kids in her thirties and had a husband that was working so hard to get a food stamp check. And so when you look at all this stuff, you really start a pathway and you, the pathway is, is really either you're going to continue doing this generational or you're going to do something completely different. So working hard, making my own money that I never had when I was a kid, what I learned about McDonald's was, is that it wasn't if you're going to be a McDonald's, it was just simply when you're, you're going to take McDonald's and become a millionaire. And so for a guy that never had anything, I thought, hey, there's nobody going to work harder than me. I'm fairly young. I was 25 at the time. And you know, the rest is history. So could you, under the current environment today, do what you did back then, meaning do you think you could still rate, you know, uh, save the amount of money and get into McDonald's the way you did several years back now? Or is, is, it, is that dream still attainable, I guess is the best way of putting it, for somebody who's watching this and saying, hey, I want to follow in that footsteps? Well, that's the very reason that I'm running. And I know you don't know this. That's why you're asking me. There's the late <laughs> Senator Coburn, who was a dear friend of mine, who got me involved in politics. We were having breakfast after he left the Senate, and he was traveling the country working on the uh, Article 5, the Convention of the States issue. And he said, the more I travel the country, uh, the more that I am concerned that people that came from your background could never do what you did. And for me, I never forgot that conversation. And that was in 2016. Uh, two years later, I ran for Congress, an open seat that uh, my uh, my friend Jim Bridenstine was in, who became yeah. the NASA administrator. And a guy that had less than 1% name ID when I started out, I became United States congressman for that district, of telling a different story, a different story of my life, a different story of being a business person who had worked my entire life to be conservative. And as the old saying goes, not mad about it, but continue to work hard every single day to bring forth conservative ideas and give back to people and give back to the community. And so it's been a great run. Uh, but my job here is to protect those opportunities just like I had. So before I get going, when you go to McDonald's, do you have a go-to meal? Well, I'm, I'm a huge biscuit guy being from the South. I love bacon, egg, cheese, biscuits. That's, I that's, do what, too. I always, that's what I always go to. And for lunch, I'm kind of all over the board between a filet of fish, a Big Mac, quarter pounder with cheese, but you always have to have French fries to bring it all together. There may be a unity message in that. <laughs> the filet of fish, that's interesting because uh, as a Catholic, I usually default to that only during Lent. I didn't realize that, that people actually ate that year round. Yeah, you know, that's, that's actually why it was invented back in the 60s up in the Northeast part of the United States was 
uh, by a guy that said there was no real good sandwich to eat during Lent. So he created the fish fillet and it uh, has lasted ever since. Um, and, and so do you still go there? I mean, do you still, if, you know, if you're hungry, do you still stop by McDonald's? Is that, is that a go-to place? I do. There's a great article just last week where I took McDonald's breakfast around to all the members who were working on voting for uh, a new speaker. And so we pushed a cart around every floor of the, of the office buildings for all the members and took breakfast to them. And I had to indulge myself. That's smart. Um, when you got to Congress, you, you, you had grown this business from one, from, well, I guess that like two up to several. You're the CEO. You have these, you know, thousands of employees, people who you get to direct, fire, hire. You, you run for Congress. It's a legislative body. You're one of 435. What was that transition like for you where you, you went from growing something that you got to decide yay, nay, to suddenly, you know, hey, uh, you're a team player now? Well, I, I think uh, it certainly is different than owning your own small business, but in McDonald's, you're part of a larger business, meaning the McDonald's brand. So you have peers as well. I had the uh, distinct opportunity for almost 15 years to serve on the National Leadership Council for McDonald's franchisees. And quite frankly, Sean, I saw early on uh, in my career when I moved to Oklahoma in the early 2000s that no matter how big you think you are, you, there's always an opportunity to fail. And McDonald's, then probably one of the most recognized brands in the world, I think only second to Coca-Cola, were having the, the company and the franchisees were having an infight, just like we're seeing in Congress today. <laughs> and you had everybody mad, leadership telling the franchisees what they were going to do. Some of the larger franchisees saying, no, you're not. And there was all this fighting going on. And so it took, uh, you know, everybody saw the stock got down to $10 a share. There was a grave concern that the restaurants weren't running well across the United States. There were about 13,000 then. And so everybody had to sit down and take a pause. And McDonald's elected new leadership. They actually went through about five CEOs. This is going to sound like a story that's playing out now. I, I've heard something similar. Yeah. <laughs> and so went through about five CEOs in a three-year period and realized that doing the same thing over and over by taking somebody that was coming up and was being anointed prince to king was not going to continue to work because the ideology was still the same. And so what they did is a really smart chairman of the board who came out of retirement, went and hired a guy that had worked over in the purchasing side of McDonald's, nothing to do with the leadership team, and brought him over to be the U.S. president for McDonald's, a guy named Mike Roberts. And he is, is the key that turned the company around because he started working on relationships. He started listening to the franchisees. He listened to the corporate people and he became a uniter. And that's what we need in Congress today. Yeah. And I saw that firsthand and we took and we changed the national owner advisory board of franchisees across the country to the National Leadership Council. And what he did is he took the best and brightest ideas from across the system and, and got members like myself to, to volunteer. We, we got paid not to do this. I mean, you know, no, no money whatsoever. And we traveled all over the country, reuniting the brand and building the credibility and the unity back up. And I did that for nine years, traveling from coast to coast, border to border, uh, building relationships back up. And then the last five years, I was a CFO for all the franchisees. So multi-billion dollar budgets, multi-billion dollar spends, people of all walks of life with different motives. But here was the thing. You know, today we're talking about the direction of our country and each member's uh, thoughts of what they need to do differently. 
sort of similar to what I dealt with with McDonald's, except these people in McDonald's, my colleagues, my, my fellow franchisees, everything was on the line. It was their livelihoods. Right. Many of them were multi-generational where their parents had been involved and they wanted to give this to their kids. And they were in, at, at the precipice of going bankrupt. So there was some real urgency to get this done. People really were frustrated. And I, I see all that playing out again right now. But you talk about how this evolved at McDonald's, right? That a leader kind of came through and put people together. As someone who has seen that work, what's missing in Congress? Well, I think uh, certainly in Congress, you have a populist movement. Uh, we're seeing it across the country. We've seen it for the last few years. You certainly have seen it in the roles that you've had. And now that's into the House of Representatives, being closest to the people, the closest uh, that the founders are, wanted us to be, the everyday life, the here and now. And you're seeing that into Congress. You're seeing people, members of Congress that represent people that they're being pushed to get something done now. And there's sort of this traditional rule of you know how we operate, the parliamentary procedures have been sort of circumvented uh, when it comes to following leadership and just everybody's going to go off the cliff together. And we saw that start happening at the beginning of the year when the Republicans uh, came back into power with the 15 vote series for Speaker McCarthy. Now what we're seeing uh, is we saw the obviously the motion to vacate, the, the patience, if you will, being lost uh, under the guise of trust. Um, and so people are being really, uh, you know, they're very short fused and they want something done. They want it done now. They're, they're concerned for the direction of our country and they want it changed. And they think by just do, everybody pushing a, a sort of a democracy in what we know uh, by history and by our founders is that every democracy has failed. So we've got to re-put re this back in the basket, if you will, and get our representative republic uh, back where its rightful place should be. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now the truth. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because what scares me is we're not looking at history enough. And I think that we're, we're going in terms of our debt, our deficit, our national security. We are not in a place where from our, in terms of trajectory that we're headed to a positive place. The thing that's interesting about the analogy is that if you own a franchise, McDonald's or anything else, and you don't make money, it goes bankrupt. You lose it. They'll either take it away. The bank will take it away. It'll go, it'll just you know, it'll, people stop coming if the food isn't good, if the employees aren't happy. I, I, I just, I look sometimes at some of these members of Congress. Someone was asking this the other day. And when I started working in and around campaigns and government, there was more of a sense of wanting to get things done, meaning I want to reduce the deficit. I want to reform welfare. I want to secure the border. There are some members now who I don't necessarily think want to get things done as much as they want to maybe grow their their brand. Yeah, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the business goes bankrupt. Actually, what happens first is the, the owner of that business stops getting paid because they tried to extend the life of that business as long as possible. And so they have to pay the light bills, you have to pay the food bills, you have to pay the, the, the labor to keep the, the, the location open. McDonald's wants their fees. So what happens, and I experienced this in early 2000s, as I mentioned, 
And I remember distinctly in January and February of 2001, I actually had to put money into the McDonald's. I never thought I'd ever have to do it in my life. And that was really a motivator where you're not only not getting paid, you're having to take money out of your personal side to put into the business. I've always said since I've been here almost five years, that if members only got paid when they perform <laughs> in a different place, uh, we might be. have a higher energy level to actually work more days in the week and more weeks in the year to actually get things done. Because what I see is a real issue here uh, is comparing, again, a personal 35-year uh, career, if you will, is process is everything. If you don't have good processes, you'll never have good policies or good outcomes. Right. And, and, and that's what McDonald's is famous for. You go over the world and it's the same. That's because the processes are the same. Well, and Here, you walk it, into one and you know that you're going to get the same right. quality. And it's a, a, a quarter pound is going to say pretty much taste the same if you're in Oklahoma or Rhode Island or California. You know, although I do will say what what is upsetting me, the ice cream machines. I don't know what's happening. I do love that soft serve Sunday, just plain vanilla Sunday. I, I don't, that's the one thing I've never understood. Why can they not, every time I drive up, it's our ice cream machine is broken. I, I think that needs to be uh, a priority of, of this gentleman that took over. Well, you know, you know, I, I will tell you this, that, uh, uh, you know, I, my, I know it's such a big deal that I used to tell uh, my managers, I said, it is the highest priority ever. And you have to personally call me every time it's down. And nobody wanted to call me. You know, I have a thousand employees and I told managers, if you don't call me, I suspend you for a week because, you know, it's about accountability to the customer, right. to the consumer. And, and it's right. We never do not serve everything. And so and obviously ice cream is part of that. But, you know, as we look at this whole process, the really the reality of all of this is, is, you know, the process of doing the appropriation, the budget window, the appropriation right. cycle, balancing the budgets, put them on time being good stewards of American taxpayer dollars. That's what's not happening here. And it hasn't happened for 23 years. We don't have any muscle memory. There's nobody in leadership today that ever worked the last time we balanced the budget and did the 12 appropriation right. bills. Think about that. Nobody working in leadership today. So but, we've got to change that, that. But isn't that, this is what, like, I, I can't, you're so calm. I, I would be just unbelievably frustrated because I look at this as an somebody who, who has worked up there. I was there in 94 when we balanced the budget. And I, I say to myself, how do you guys from different backgrounds come up here and say, this process is okay, right? I, I was talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene a few weeks ago, um, and she said, the idea that we know the deadline for the fiscal year is September and we take all of August off is silly. We should maybe go home in July and be here in August. But there are so many common sense things that people come up here and just allow the can to keep getting kicked. And I, I've said this before to other members, there are programs that are outdated, they're inefficient, and yet why, why are we at least not getting the low-hanging stuff? And it's somebody with your background, I just have got to think that you pull your hair out every day. Oh, you do. I mean, it, it is amazing to me that we work, you know, two full days and two partial days a week. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that our calendar automatically takes off days in the year, as Margaret Taylor Green was saying, regardless if we've got anything resolved or not. And we've got to change the way we're thinking. Uh, as I, as you know, I chair the Republican Study yeah. Committee, the largest caucus in all of Congress, 176 members of the 221 Republicans, so 80% of the conference. And so I, I was the budget chairman for two years, two balanced budgets from the Republican Study Committee. I'm now the chairman for two years. And 
I told the team when I hit the ground running last year in November, still two year, two months before I was going to take uh, the, the official gavel, that we're going to start working on the budget committee today. Right. We're going to pick our team and we're going to start working with members so that when we actually gavel in as the chair, we're going to have two months head start on the budgeting process so that we can have a budget and push our, our conference to be looking at a balanced budget. And oh, by the way, when the appropriations season hits, we're going to be doing that ahead of the appropriation season, not after. Right. And we had we got dealt the, the, debt, the debt limit deal in, on January 19th. We started them working on a debt limit playbook. And then what we did was we put this forward and the conference used it. So what, but, but you have this conference, this caucus, that's the largest in the conference. At some point, can you jam through some things and just say, all right, guys, like we've got these 10 reforms. Like where does the, de- what, for the person listening right now and saying, okay, you've got the background, you've got the experience and the ideas. Like where's the, where does the process fall apart? Well, I think, again, it's not getting an early start. I I give Kevin McCarthy a lot of credit because we did start early on several things that kept members busy. And we started early on doing a lot of meetings. And then we kind of got bogged down in the debt limit deal and things started falling apart. We're missing deadlines. But it is so important to send a message, as I mentioned about being McDonald's. I mean, I work seven days a week. You know, we were open seven days a week. I work seven days a week if necessary. We knew exactly what we had to do every single month in order to be successful. We need to redefine what success is. And success is uh, just what we're seeing right now. We have, we've got to tackle this $34 trillion of debt. For the first time in, a, in American history, Sean, we borrowed 100% of our operating budget this year. 100%. But this is where, again, Republicans, the one thing that should unite every Republican is smaller government, less spending, right? And obviously, hopefully, lower taxes. This is what I think for the average person when I talk to them, go, why can't like I there are some things that obviously are going to be much more complicated. But if you start saying, okay, here are the 50 things that we can agree need to get cut from the budget. Maybe we start at 50 and there's why can't we start to build consensus on just the low hanging fruit? Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I can give you lots of examples of how I was top 5% most profitable restaurants in the United States because I looked at every line item on the PL and I said, we need to take a little bit from every line item so that we don't really destroy that line item. And that's the same thing in Congress as we're doing this. And I worked on the budget. Everybody gives a little, so nobody has to give a lot. Um, as I mentioned about being in poverty when I was younger, it's really important to me that our poverty programs, our social safety nets are actually working. Right. I have my team reach out. We have 92 programs in America today that are federally backed, over $1.2 trillion of federal money. So there's a lot of money going out. And I have my team reach out to GAO to understand how, how effective they were. And they literally said it was going to take six months to a year to get back to us to even let us know how 30 of the programs were. <laughs> but that's, that's to me, again, I just start saying to myself, fine, if you can't, def- you know, uh, pass a budget in terms of some of these agencies or prove your worth, then why don't we take you to zero and you build yourself back up? I mean, zero-based budgeting is one suggestion. But the idea that these guys, to your point, the Government Accountability Office, who's the watchdog, can't even do it, is a problem. Well, the the federal government's gotten so big, it's beyond belief of our founders. Uh, Our regular processes don't work anymore. That's why we have to have somebody, I would argue, with a business background, that's not done this their entire life, 
to actually tackle these problems right. from a different perspective. It's not anything like anyone's ever seen in Washington, D.C. And so I think we have to have a different perspective. It's a different time. If we're going to make changes, we've got to have different leadership. So so where where do we go on this government shutdown? We're less than 30 days away. We can't. I mean, I don't mean to say it this way. I, it's not that we can't. If we pass all the bills one by one, I don't know where that gets us. We just start to burn the clock. So where does this, what do we do and where do we end up? Well, a lot depends on when we get our new speaker elected. If it's tomorrow, we still have 30 days to get them all done. But as an example, what we just talked about with a calendar, uh, the first thing the leader is going to have to do is take back the two weeks in November that were originally scheduled for people to go back and do work in their district. So you got to have really a full 30 days to work on those. And then you have to do these on blocks of, of appropriation bills to get them on the floor. We need to come forward with the defense uh, appropriation bill and work with the Senate to get a, a funding mechanism done. So we don't have this issue with our soldiers and our you know, sailors and our you know airmen are, that are being threatened, not being paid when they're out doing the great work of securing our nation from bad actors around the world like we're seeing right now. So we've got to get some of these things get them done, get them, get the appropriation bills done, which we have, um, you know, we've got four of them done right now. Get those packaged up, get those in the conference with the Senate, get those funded so that we can take those off the table and keep working forward. And then look on November 17th to see where we are. You know, if we have one or two left to see how we're going to fix those going forward. And do you think that after that process is done, that there can be a serious discussion about the, the, how to reform the system so that we don't end up back here again, that we talk about the calendar for next year and the process for next year. I mean, kind of to your point about getting ahead of the budget, can we do that? Is there enough? Because I always feel like we pass a debt limit increase or a CR and we go, okay, uh, we'll, we'll get to that next time. And then we wait until the following September to deal with it ever again. Well, what happens is, is if you look at some of the proposals out there that we do, you know, CR into next year and we work on appropriation bills along the way. Here's what I can tell you. If we take the pressure off of the here and now, then everybody will wait again. You've seen it time and time again over the years. They'll wait to the last minute to get it done right. and we'll be jammed up again. So you have to keep this rolling pressure on of getting the the the, the bills done and then get them what's left. You get those funded at the end of the year. But the problem is, is we keep doing this and then we get all the way deep into next year and we're still working on the current year funding. Right. Uh, through, through, you know, continuing resolutions, end up doing omnibus bills or minibus bills. We need to get that done quickly and then get back in the regular appropriate budgeting appropriations, fund the government and, and get off of this cycle, this this drug of just keep kicking the can down the road, because without a budget, you can never control spending or the debt. Right. Congressman, before I let you go, we do a rapid fire with uh, with all of our guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. When you traveled, you arrive earlier just in time. Early every time. Early, how early? Like on a plane? Are you the the hour guy or the? I get I get to every meeting five to ten minutes early, twenty minutes early, and it drives my staff crazy. <laughs> well, good. I think that's a sign of respect. How low can you let your cell phone battery go? Oh, ten percent. I'm shocked on that one. Uh, how many unread emails do you currently have? Zero. Zero. Every night. Every every I'm I'm really. I'm really detailed about that. If people are reaching out to me. I want to see what they have to say so I can respond. Wow. If you had 48 hours to binge a show, what would it be? 
Oh, I just watched The American, uh, which was pretty interesting because, you know, it was based off a true story with CIA uh, uh, informants or agents. And it was really good because it puts a perspective on how vulnerable our country can be from time to time. Yeah. How clean do you keep your house? Very. What's your least favorite chore? Painting. <laughs> how often do you paint? <laughs> Never. My, my wife knows it's not worth That's the hassle. <laughs> okay. Uh, who is the coolest celebrity you've ever met? Oh, wow. You. Yeah. Okay. That, that, thanks for sucking up. Who else? Give me another one. That's not fair. Uh, oh, my goodness. That's um, De Niro. Okay. That's good. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, if you could have a drink with someone you've never met before, who would it be? Um, probably um, Alan Arms or uh, uh, Neil Armstrong. Oh, obviously he's dead. But I, I'm no fair I, enough. It, we can you can do living or dead. Yeah, Neil Armstrong. I would love that he was a very humble man. Biggest pet peeve: people being late. Yeah, I figured the inverse of that. What's something you won't go cheap on? Taking my wife to dinner. Smart man. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I did a reality TV stint on Dancing with the Stars. If you were forced to go on a reality TV show, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. That's hard. I would not go on Dancing with the Stars. I saw you on there, man. I, <laughs> I'm, 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 I admire you. Uh, uh, you got, uh, how about you know, a cooking show? Are you good at cooking? No, it'd probably like like uh, Doug Dynasty or something like that. But are you good at cooking or do you just like to own McDonald's? I'm really good at boiling water. Okay. Hey, one last controversial question, uh, and then I'll let you go. Where do you come down on the McRib? I remember when the first one came out in 1986 because I was working in a restaurant. I love them. Um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the story of that McRib is incredible. Uh, we'll have to talk about it on another show, but it is incredible. The following people will drive hundreds of miles to get one. If they, if they know that they're, out in their restaurants. Really? Yeah. So why doesn't McDonald's make it year round then? Because honestly, they have to alert the pork producers a year ahead of time they're going to do it. And they only make a certain amount of pork to do it. And it usually gets depleted in five to six weeks. Holy smokes. I didn't, I didn't. Wow. Well, there you go. We just learned something important. Congressman Kevin Hearn, thanks for sharing part of your day with us and uh, have a great weekend. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that explains a lot. You get a guy like him. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you this. I would keep my eye on Kevin Hearn. This is a guy, you heard it, he understands relationships. He understands fiscal policy. This is somebody who I think is going places just a couple terms in, already elected chairman of the study committee for a good reason. People see in him what I think you probably saw in him as well. This guy has a future as a leader for the right reasons. Um, next up, I'm excited to talk to Carol Swain. She used to come on my show on Newsmax. She's got a brand new book out, The Adversity of Diversity, How the Supreme Court's Decision to Remove Race from College Admission Criteria Will Doom Diversity Programs. It is an exciting new look about how diversity programs are not working, how the DEI movement is just creating a bunch of jobs for people and not actually doing what it's supposed to. So let's get into it with Carol Swain. Carol, good to see you. It's been a while. Uh, you must have been busy working on this new book since we last spoke. Uh, how's it been going? Well, the book has been out since the end of August. And I did spend the spring working on the book. And it was 90% finished by the end of June. And then I had to wait for the Supreme Court decision. <laughs> and I was holding my breath. 
I had gambled that they would strike down race-based affirmative action because DEI had gotten so extreme. And I knew that if they didn't strike it down, there was no way to pull back. But I also had that fear that they would do the wrong thing, which would have meant that I would have had to rewrite substantially the book. So did you, did they end up going in the direction that you thought would, they'd go or was it somewhat of a, of a different angle? No, no, no. Um, I would say five years ago, I had a book draft on why diversity training is all wrong. And so I had the idea that we were approaching the issues of race and inclusion in the wrong way back then. But when I saw how discriminatory race-based affirmative action had become in just about every sector of our lives, in fact, after the death of George Floyd, it just, um, it, I mean, it was just on steroids as far as the divisiveness and the money that was poured into the industry. It became a billion dollar industry. It- It really has, hasn't it? I mean, now every company has to have somebody who's a DEI, uh, you know, corporate officer, a dean at a college. We've really kind of escalated this. So it's a part of everything now, hasn't it? Yes. And and also at the colleges and universities, that's one of the reasons for the rising costs. So you can sort of track it. And whether it's a public school or private school, University of Michigan has 163 DEI personnel. They have more DEI personnel than they do history. Professors. 163, and those people don't teach, right? That's those are administrative officials. They protect uh, the students and make sure that they are. Uh, I mean, they're there for whatever they say they are doing. And University of Virginia, which is a public school, I believe they have 84. They have 80 some. Virginia Tech, and I mentioned in these Virginia schools because I'm from Virginia and I was recently debating at Washington and Lee. So I know a little bit about those schools and there's no clear benefits from DEI in higher education. And one of the main contributions of my book is that most people have not drawn the connection between the Supreme Court striking down race-based affirmative action and the implications for diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and CRT because they violate the Constitution and the Equal Protection, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and our civil rights laws in the same way. My argument is that the DEI programs are doomed to for extinction because of their violations. And more and more white people are filing lawsuits, men are filing lawsuits, people who have experienced religious discrimination are filing lawsuits. And I believe that the days in which you could single out certain groups and uh, give them unequal treatment, that's coming to an end. So within your community, when you espouse the things you do in your book about how diversity programs are not achieving their goals, what, what is the response? Because it's interesting, you talk about how DEI programs have an, uh, an unconstitutional basis, and yet you see more and more of them pop up. You see more corporations talk about the need to have 
uh, stated goals and uh, to, to have more inclusion. You see discussions about reparations. We're moving in, a, in that direction, not this direction. What is the, when you talk to groups of African-Americans and other black community activists, what do they think of what you're espousing? Well, first of all, the ideas are new and the book is new. And what I'm trying to do is educate all Americans about the dangers of DEI. And if you look at what's taken place on the college campuses with the pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian student groups, these are groups that are DEI groups. And when you have professors that come out and they say the most vicious and uh, atrocious, make the most atrocious statements against other against Jews or against whites, they are given a double standard. And that's because of diversity, equity, and inclusion. If they were white Americans making that statement about any other group, they would be, they would be suspended. They would be laid off. They would be investigated. All of these are products of diversity, equity, and inclusion because of the double standards. But it was Lyndon Johnson's Howard University commencement speech in 1965 that brought in the preferential treatment. That was never the goal of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was about non-discrimination, equal opportunity. And what happened was that affirmative action through executive orders added the things that are discriminatory. And then Richard Nixon, Republican, not to be left behind, he instituted the quota program, the Philadelphia quotas that the Supreme Court eventually struck down. And so affirmative action was always reverse discrimination against whites. Uh, it benefited um, the more elite racial and ethnic minorities and some of the working class for a while, but not because we had to have that. I would argue that people like me who came from poverty, we benefited from non-discrimination the outreach, because immediately after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, colleges, universities, employers reached out to underrepresented groups. They sent out recruiters. That's what diversity used to mean. It was not about group identity. It was searching for qualified individuals to make them aware of opportunities. And they had an equal opportunity to fail or to succeed. Equity is about equal outcomes. And so the diversity today is about bringing in groups and keeping them uh, cohesive in that group identity. And inclusion is not about integration. The Civil Rights Act sought to bring about integration. Inclusion is not integration. It is encouraging people to segregate and all the pressure on making people feel that they belong or feel included I mean, that's ridiculous because you can't control someone else's feelings. In my day, you were given an opportunity to get into an environment, to prove yourself, but you were kind of on your own right. and people succeeded. Well, it's funny. I, you know, we, we've celebrated the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. And there are so many people who now take what Martin Luther King said and twist it to, to benefit what they want. Growing up, I had always heard his words as meaning that at some point we'll come to a, a place in this country and in society where the, the color of your skin doesn't matter, but it's the content of your character, what you do with yourself. I feel like, and again, as a white guy, 
that we've moved backwards. And it's now all about the color of your skin. There's nothing that you can do. Uh, people who are white have to denounce their privilege. We have to say that we are ahead. And it's not about you or other people who are black uh, getting something. It's about us taking ourselves down. Does that make sense? It's absolutely true. And even if you look at people like Bob Woodson, like most people have yep. heard of Bob Woodson. Of course. Uh, and there are just so many Blacks that were pre-civil rights movement successes. And the whole argument today is that racial and ethnic minorities, particularly Blacks, are victims, and you have to lower the standards, and that mathematics, uh, they argue that math is racist now, and that a Black person <laughs> might get a different answer to a math problem or an equation than a white person all of that is ludicrous. Right. And I would uh, argue that we were making great strides and progress as far as race in America until after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. And so many people uh, voted for him and they felt that America was post-racial and that we had created that great society where people, based on their merit and their hard work, that uh, they could be anything they imagine. So and so that was, we were optimistic about race relations and the reversal came with the election of President Obama and when they brought the critical race theory. Critical race theory had been in the academy, deconstructionism, postmodernism, all of those ideas have always been in the academy. Uh, but all of a sudden it started affecting the university structures, every department of the university. And that's where we took the wrong term, restorative justice. That was a wrong term. There's this term. belief by, by many that there's systemic racism in our country. Do you agree with that? There was systemic racism when I was born in 1954. We had a segregated system. Uh, we were segregated under the law. And I watched the passage of three civil rights acts in the 1960s while I was a child. That ended systemic racism. And the racism that existed after that was individual prejudice. And we had made great strides in eradicating the impact of individual prejudices. And one thing I've always known, I went to school in the 1980s as an adult, I don't know if you know that I was a high school dropout. I was one of 12 really? children born and raised in rural poverty. Wow. And first generation uh, college student, I was able uh, to go to college, go to a community college, which had an open door policy, prove myself there, go to a four-year college, graduate magna cum laude, and, uh, and get the college and university degrees and that is the America, you know, that it's the America that's available for anyone. Right. And I will argue that my race benefited me because there were so many people that were looking for talented minorities. And because I excelled, because I was an honest student, everyone knew my name. If I had been white, if I had been Asian, uh, it wouldn't have, I would, I would have been just another A student. I would have been just another honor student, but because I was black, I benefited from being black. Right. And so I don't see systemic racism today, except that which comes from the Democratic Party and from the people on the left 
who are trying to keep racial and ethnic minorities down. And diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, it provides jobs for a few people, but it does not benefit uh, the society as a whole. Hey, let me ask you one last question before I, I, I go. Republicans always seem to try to do things that will increase their share of, of, of the black vote. They say that they need to go more places. They say that they need to change their policies. What would your advice be to candidates, Republican candidates, conservatives trying to reach out to the black community? What should they be doing or saying? They should treat black people the way they treat white people. We care about the same things. We care about good schools. We care about crime. We care about the economy. Uh, the problem they make is assuming that they have to do something extraordinary. And there are people in the black community that are aligned with the Republican Party that have their own self-interest. And so they make quite a bit of money saying they can get the <laughs> black vote, but they're not doing anything new. And if I were a white politician and I wanted the black vote, I would go into those communities the same way I would go into um, white communities. And, and I believe that is what is required and let people know that you understand that they are just like you. They want the same things for their children. Right. Carol Swain, congratulations on the book. I always enjoy our conversations. So thank you for, uh, for coming on the thank show. Thank you. All right, those are two great discussions to get into heading into the weekend. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did. Uh, remember, reach out, continue the conversation with me. Tell me what you think. You can text me at 571-441-4991. Love that conversation with Carol Swain about where we are 50 years after that March on Washington. Are we actually moving in the right direction to envision this world that Martin Luther King wanted? I don't think so. And you heard her agree with me. And then Kevin Hearn, man, I'm telling you, he puts his finger right on so many of the problems that are happening, why Congress isn't operating the way it is, why we're not getting the results. And hopefully his leadership will help move us in that direction. Um, I'm excited about next week. A lot to continue to break down with you. A lot going on in the presidential race, Trump's court case. He's pushing back on that gag order. So enjoy the weekend. Thanks for being with us. Continue to subscribe. If you can go on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. I'd love it. If you got a little time this weekend, please do that. We'll see you back here on Monday on The Sean Spicer Show.